Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are learning the fourth portion of Parshat Shlach. We concluded the previous section describing B'nai Israel mourning God's decree that they will not go into Eretz Israel, but will travel the desert aimlessly for 40 years, dying in the desert, and only their children will enter the land of Israel. We will reread verse 39 and continue from there. וידבר משה את הדברים האלה אל כל בני ישראל, ויתאבלו העם מאוד. וישכימו בבוקר, ויעלו אל ראש ההר לאמור, הננו ועלינו אל המקום אשר אמר אדוני, כי חטאנו. When Moshe spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place where Hashem has promised. The morning appears to turn into a case of tshuva, repentance. B'nai Yisrael recognize that they rejected Eretz Yisrael, and they admit their sin, ki chatanu. And we are always taught that nothing stands in the way of tshuva, or so it seems. Verse 41. אל תעלו, כי אין אדוני בקרבכם, ולא תנגפו לפני אויביכם. כי העמלקי והכנעני שם לפניכם, ונפלתם בחרב, כי על כן שבתם מאחרי אדוני, ולא יהיה אדוני עמכם. But Moshe said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of Hashem, when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for Hashem is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from, the fo- from following Hashem, and Hashem will not be with you. Moshe tells them that they will not succeed, and worse than that, they will die in the attempt. God will not be with them when they are going against God's will. Why is their tshuva ineffective? Three theoretical possibilities. It is deemed insincere by God. B'nai Israel's behavior in the long term with no duress is much more telling than an attempt to turn the clock back when they are being punished. Regret after punishment is questionable if it is regret of the sin or regret of the punishment. Number two, it is deemed too late. They tried me ten times. With all due respect to repentance, there comes a time when a punishment must be met out. Sincere? Perhaps, but too late to avert punishment. The simple meaning of the verses, God's punishment is not just that, it is a commandment. They were commanded to go to Eretz Yisrael, as it says in Dvarim chapter 1 verse 21, Ale Resh, go up and inherit the land. But in the aftermath of the sin, they are commanded to travel back to the desert in the direction of the Red Sea. Going now to Eretz Yisrael is a transgression of God's command. Highlighted in Sefer Dvarim, Batamruet Piyashem, you rebelled against the word of God. Of course, this explanation should not stand on its own, but in conjunction one of the two previous explanations to understand why they, why they could not or why they did not succeed in repenting. We continue to the end of the chapter, verse 44. ואהרון ברית אדוני ומשה לא משהו מקרב המחנה. וירד העמלקי והכנעני היושב בהר ההוא, ויקום ויקטום עד החורמה. 
But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem nor Moshe left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Bnei Israel do not heed Moshe's advice and they nonetheless try to try to go up to Eretz Israel, where they meet their fate. The same Aaron that was meant to go before them and choose their destination, as described in Parashat Ba'alotcha, Va'aron Brit Hashem Nose'a Lifnehem, Latur Lahem Menucha, remains stationary and does not go before them. Their fate is a bitter fate at the hands of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. The word Vayapilu is an unusual word. Targum Onkelos translates Va'arsha'u, they were wicked, referring to their refusal to listen to Moshe's word. This also fits with the parallel word in Dvarim describing this sin, Vatazidu, they did so purposely, transgressing God's word. However, however, other commentaries look into the meaning of the root, Ein Pei Lamed. The Ibn Ezra takes the most literal approach. Ophel is a fortress. <coughs> Bnei Israel went up to conquer the fortress at the top of the mountain. Rashi takes the root in a more figurative matter. A fortress is called Ophel because the root Ayn Peilamid denotes strength. Thus they use their strength to go up to the mountain. Sforno in a similar but more creative vein explains that the strength denoted by the word Vaya'apilu is that they hardened their hearts and ignored what Moshe said similar to Paro, who would harden his heart, and would not listen to Moshe. The Midrash Tanchuma, quoted by Rashi, is a wordplay, changing the Ayn in the root word to Aleph. Ophel with an Aleph means darkness. They went into the darkness without God's permission, without his presence, without his ark, without Moshe. Interesting to note historically that the attempt to enter Eretz Yisrael illegally in the pre-state years of the 1930s and the 1940s by boat from the Mediterranean was called Ha'apala, and the Jews on those boats Ma'apilim, referring to our parasha. The common den denominator attempting to enter Eretz Yisrael and illegally. However, as opposed to the biblical Ma'apilim, we tend to view the modern-day Ma'apilim favorably. Ad ha the more common explanation, and the one that we used in our translation, is that is a name of a place. They were they were struck down until the place Chorma. The Ibn Ezra brings an additional meaning, Ad Shehecherimum, until they were utterly destroyed. As we previously mentioned, a contradiction a contradiction exists within our verses in Bimidbar as to whether the Amalekites and the Canaanites were located. Verse 25 says they were dwelling in the valley. While verse 45 says they were dwelling in the mountain, and they came down from there to attack B'nai Israel. Some of the commentators took note of this and gave several technical answers. Chizkuni says that the majority lived in the valley and a minority in the hilltops, and those in the hilltops were the ones who attacked. Additionally, he suggests that they dwelled in the valley, but they went up to the mountain to attack from a strategically preferable location. Lest you say it says in the word in in the pasuk Hayoshev Bahar, implying they dwelled on the mountain. The Chizkuni replies that in the Tanakh the word Yashav also appears in the context of taking position in an ambush. 
The Ibn Ezra offers the same second explanation and the Chizkuni, but in the opposite direction. They dwelled in the mountain and the ambush was set up in the valley. Another contradiction exists about the identity of the nations who attacked those who attempted to enter Eretz Yisrael, otherwise known as the Ma'apilim. In Sefer Bebidbar, we just mentioned the Amalekites and the Canaanites, while in Dvari, Moshe mentions the Amorites. Here, too, Ibn Ezra offers a technical explanation. In both contradictions, I would like to think that there is a more fundamental explanation that justifies these contradictions rather than these technical explanations that were presented. But being aware of contradictions and keeping our eyes out for new solutions is also knowledge, even if we don't have the satisfactory answer we are looking for today at this moment. Learning Torah is a long-term mission with questions and answers constantly regenerating and renewing. One should not be upset when they do not have a satisfactory answer to a good question. One must be patient. One final word on the comparison to the story in Dvarim. We discussed some of the contradictions and two options for analysis. Do we try to piece together one unified story out of the two versions, as the Ramban tends to in his commentary? Or do we try to see different perspectives? I want to read one final passage from Dvarim, from chapter 1, verse 25 and onwards. The Moshe describes the Miraglim's return. They took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us, and they brought us back a report and said, It is a good land which Hashem our God is about to give us. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of Hashem your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, Because Hashem hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we, the cities are large and fortified to heaven, and besides we saw the sons of the giants there. The report of the spies, as reported by Moshe, is highly truncated. Did they only report that the land was good, as described in verse 25? And to that, B'nai Israel reacted negatively? Only when we read B'nai Israel's response do we see that the spies also melted their hearts describing the nations and the cities in Eretz Israel. But this is an afterthought. In Bimidbar, in contrast, the spies played such a prominent role. What happened to the spies and their undermining report? Why is it almost ignored in, Moshe, in Moshe's description in Sefer Dvarim? The story in Sefer Dvarim is addressed to B'nai Israel in the next generation, the ones who will enter Eretz Israel. Moshe is not interested in rebuking ten spies that died close to 40 years ago. Moshe is rebuking the nation. From Moshe's vantage point, the full blame has to be placed on the nation in order that the new nation in this new generation that will enter Eretz Israel understands the responsibility on their shoulders to trust and believe that God will help them and be with them. The spies played a significant and unfortunate role, but not relevant to Moshe's message to the nation in Sefer Dvarim. So too we can look at the apparent contradictions between the two stories. What are the aims and purposes of each of the two stories? And in that vein, we can explain many of the contradictions. One final concluding remark.
Besides the comparison to the other version of the story in Devarim, throughout this story we learned about the sin of the spies through comparing and contrasting with the other great sin of this generation, the sin of the golden calf. And now we move on to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is an anomaly. It doesn't seem to belong. Bimidbar till this point has largely been a narrative. When there was an exception to the narrative and Bimidbar dealt with a halachic topic, we attempted to explain why it belonged in the context. However, since Bnei Israel began traveling to Eretz Yisrael on the 20th of Iyar, we have only come across narratives. Furthermore, the next narrative, the rebellion of Korach in chapter 16, seems to be extremely relevant in the aftermath of the sin of the spies, as we will learn next week. However, all of a sudden, chapter 15 interferes and interrupts the narrative with four halachic portions, most that seem to belong to Sefer Vaikra as they deal with the world of sacrifices, and one short narrative about an individual story that seems to have no relevance to our broader context whatsoever. Our mission in learning chapter 15 will be to understand each section individually, but also attempt to understand its relevance to the context of what we are learning. Let's begin with verse 1. Now Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. Rashi, according to certain versions of Rashi, Ibn Ezra and Ramban, immediately comment that this section in this context is immediately meant to be comforting to B'nai Israel. This generation, as promised, will not enter the land, but B'nai Yisrael, the nation, will ultimately enter the land. After all the harshness and sense of rejection in the aftermath of the sin of the spies and the Ma'apilim, there is hope for the future of entering Eretz Yisrael. Not only hope, but a definite statement, when you enter the land, not if. What are they commanded to do when they enter the land? Verse 3. Then make an offering by fire to Hashem, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, a shlamim sacrifice, to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to Hashem from the herd or from the flock. The laws that we, we read relate to, offering, to an ola offering or burnt offering and a shlamim or peace offering, whether it be a private one to fulfill an oath or on your holidays, which might refer to a public obligation on the holiday or might refer to a private obligation on the holiday. But what needs to be done with this said ola or shlamim? Verse 4. The kriv hamakriv korbano ladunai mincha salat isaron balul birviritahin shaman. Viyain la nesech riviritahin taase al haola o la zavach la keves haechad. The one who presents his offering shall present to Hashem a grain offering of one tenth of an efa, a fine flour mixed with one fourth of a hin of oil. And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one fourth of a hin, with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. When a sheep is offered, all Ola offerings are male, as stated in Vayikra 1, as opposed to Shlamim offerings that may be male or female, as stated in Vayikra 3. One must offer along with it a Mincha, or meal offering, of one Isaron of Solet, a weight measurement, 
Solat is fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil, hin being a, a measurement of volume or liquid measurement, plus a quarter of a hin of wine. Verse 6. Or for a ram, you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a soothing aroma to Hashem. When a ram is offered, a larger animal, the proportions of flour, oil, and wine change appropriately. Two isaron of flour mixed with one-third heen of oil and one-third heen of wine. Verse 8. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for a peace offerings to Hashem, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half a hin of oil. And you shall offer as the drink offering one-half of a hin of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Hashem. Now we move on to an even larger animal, the bull, and here too the proportions grow. Three saron of flour mixed with one half heen of oil and one half heen of wine. Verse 11. Thus it shall be done for each ox, or for each ram, or for each of the male lambs, or of the goats, According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do everyone according to their number. The numbers stated are the numbers for an individual sheep, ram, or ox, and so the numbers change based on the type of animal and number of animals offered. On a pure halachic level, the Ramban discusses what this has to do with entering Eretz Yisrael. The combination of flour mixed with oil plus wine are referred to as nisachin. In the desert... Offerings were not obligated in Nisachim, with the exception of the daily offering, Korban Tamid, mentioned already in Shmot, with Nisachim. In contrast, says the Ramban, the Nisiim, the princes, at the end of Nassau, made many offerings with no Nisachim. He mentions that in this regard, a disagreement exists amongst the sages. Some are of the opinion that both public and private offerings did not have, nisachim, have the Nisachim component in the desert, and in both, it was added upon arrival in Eretz Yisrael, while others are of the opinion that public offerings had an Nisachim component in the desert, as we see with regard to the daily offering. And the Torah here is teaching us that upon arrival in Eretz Yisrael, there will be an Nisachim component in private offerings as well. The question is, what do Nisachim have to do with entering Eretz Yisrael? The Sforno's answer is an unequivocal nothing. The addition of Nesachim is not a reaction to entering Eretz Yisrael, it is a reaction to sin. Prior to the sin of the golden calf, it was sufficient to offer sacrifices with no Nesachim component at all. See Hevel and his offering, Noach, Avraham, and other pre-sin offerings that are mentioned in the Torah before the sin of the golden calf. After the sin of the golden calf, the Nisachim component were added to the daily offering. As a parenthetical statement, the Sforno is assuming that the commandment of the daily offering takes place 
after the sin of the golden calf, as opposed to the sequence of the verses in Shemot which place it before. This is consistent with the Sforno's general approach that the commandment to build a Mishkan in its entirety was after and a result of the sin of the golden calf, as opposed to the sequence of the verses that placed the commandment to build the Mishkan before the sin of the golden calf. The end of parenthetical remark. Now, after the sin of the spies, says the Sforno, it is necessary to add the Nisachim component to all sacrifices, including private ones. How do Nisachim help or solve the problem or atone for those two sins? Is it simply that more is better? When you sin, you must give even more to God. Perhaps. The Sforno doesn't exactly explain. But the verse is not based on a negative context. It does not say before the Nisachim, which might refer to the sin. The sin, the, the Nisachim, are based on when you come to Eretz Yisrael. As opposed to the Sforno's comment, what do Nisachim have to do with Eretz Yisrael? That's the question we should be asking. As mentioned, the Nisachim are a combination of flour, oil, and wine. These three components represent the three main food items in Eretz Yisrael. As we say daily in Vehayim Shamoa, Ve'asafta diganecha, tiroshecha, v'yitzharecha, dagan, grain or flour, tirosh is wine, and yitzhar is olive oil. When you enter Eretz Yisrael, you will not only serve God by offering him, offering him an animal sacrifice, but each animal offered will have a representative offering from the food of the land. So you are not merely entering a land, but entering a self-sustaining land. Verse 13. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Hashem. This verse points to the plausibility of the opinion that this section added the Nesachim component to the individuals only, as the commandment is directed at the individual. The Ezrach, the native, or in modern Hebrew, means citizen which is not far from the meaning of the word in the Torah. The Ezrach is almost always mentioned in conjunction with the Ger. Whether Ger means a convert or a stranger, or a non-Jew who lives among the Jewish people, though he is not one of the nation, the Ezrach is, in contrast, the regular Jew. In verse 3, the word Obemoadechem, on holidays, might have given plausibility to the opinion that this section adds the Nisachim component to public offerings as well. While Halacha recognizes individual obligatory sacrifices, both Ola and Shlamim on holidays, the only offerings explicitly mentioned on holidays till this point in the Torah are public ones. Verse 14. If an alien, ger, sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Hashem, just as you do, he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations as you shall as you are, so shall the alien before, be before Hashem. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. This refrain of including the stranger or convert in this set of laws regarding the Nesachim is an interesting one. 
In general, one must question whether the Torah decides to make this when where the Torah decides to make this comment. If it refers to a convert, are converts not included in, in all commandments? If it refers to a non-Jewish str- stranger, why would a, a non-Jew be included in these mitzvot? Some examples where the Torah feels the need to stress the inclusion of the ger, the Pesach sacrifice, Yom Kippur, refraining from prohibited sexual relationships in Eretz Yisrael, the prohibition to eat blood, the commandment to cover blood of an undomesticated animal slaughtered, and we will see another example in the continuation of our chapter. It seems to be rather a random list, and certainly beyond the scope of this lesson to delve into this broad topic. However, let us attempt to make a broad suggestion. If ger refers to a convert, one might make the following suggestion. Even if one is accepted into the fold as a Jew, there are certain obligations that one might have thought are limited to a Jew by birth because of their historical roots. For example, the Pesach sacrifice is only relevant to the actual descendants of those who were enslaved and exited and left Egypt. Comes the Torah to dispel that theory and obligates the convert in Korban Pesach. If a ger refers to a non-Jewish stranger, one, makes, one might make the following suggestion. There are certain commandments that relate not only to Jews, but all people who put their faith together with the Jewish people by living in their land, something like non-Jewish people serving in the IDF today. We can take these two approaches and apply them to the two approaches we gave to explain the section on Nisachim within the broader context. The Sfarno, as we recall, suggested that the Nisachim are necessary in the aftermath of the two great sins, the golden calf and the sin of the spies, the convert who does not relate to these sins because his forefathers were not part of B'nai Israel might be exempt. Comes the Torah to teach us that the convert's choice to become part of the nation make him, makes him share their history as well, and he too must bring Nisachim. The counter-suggestion was that the Nisachim relate not to the past sins, but to the arrival in Eretz Israel in the future. Once arriving in Eretz Yisrael, all sacrifices must be accompanied by the basic foods of the land, grain, wine, and olive oil. This obligation will not apply to non-Jews who do not live in Eretz Yisrael. But non-Jews who live in Eretz Yisrael also must make offerings to God while recognizing the food upon which they are sustained, the basic foods of Eretz Yisrael. And in this we conclude the first halachic section in the aftermath of the sin of the spies.